24-year-old James Patrick Duggan and his new wife arrived at the Grove on Saturday, November 28, 1942, along with some friends. A machinist by trade and born in Northbridge, Massachusetts, he had recently wed Mary O'Hara. Jimmy was probably thinking this might be their last time for a while he and Mary could go out with their friends before enlisting or even getting drafted for the war. Fortunately, he would not be drafted or compelled to enlist. Unfortunately, Jimmy would lose his young bride to one of the deadliest fires in American history, just a few hours after pushing through the revolving door. I'm Tim Coleman. I'm Jeff Moss. And I'm Tyler J. Thomas. Together we will explore and discuss these events from the perspective of over 30 years of combined locksmith and door hardware experience. This is The Three Tumblers. The Coconut Grove Fire, Part 2, Inferno in Paradise. The streetcar jostled along the route that would later become known as the MBTA's Orange Line. Anthony Peter Mara rode in the car, taking a roughly 40-minute or so ride to get to work by 4 p.m. Tony, as he was known by friends and family, was a busboy at the Coconut Grove nightclub. A full-time student at Everett High School during the week, Tony made sure that the customers at the Grove had plenty of water to drink and butter for their bread. Speaking of bread, patrons of the Grove were spending plenty of it on dinner and drinks. The two most expensive items on the menu were the broiled large lobster and squab chicken, both ringing up at a whopping $2.25 each. Still, it's not a bad deal considering that same amount is worth about $44 in today's currency. On Saturdays, people faced a minimum charge of $3 per person, meaning you had to spend that money or else face one of the bouncers. This amount of money was a small price to pay, however, as many of the customers there were servicemen getting ready to deploy to the war within days and, in some cases, hours. Listening to the husky voice of Goody Goodell in the downstairs Melody Lounge, one serviceman was hoping to have more than just dinner and drinks with his girlfriend. Thinking that the zebra print upholstery wasn't enough camouflage, the young man decided to reach over and unscrew a bulb from the fake palm tree in the corner of the room. Stanley Tomaszewski had been told by a manager to go screw the bulb back in, and since this was well before the days of pocket flashlights, he used a match to see what he was doing. Whether this caused the fire or not was never able to be determined, but what is known is that fire erupted from that corner and quickly spread throughout the building. The labor laws were established nationally in 1916, preventing people under the age of 18 from being compelled to work 40-hour-a-week jobs. It was uh, decided that children should have time to grow and develop, socialize, and learn before they were committed to the workforce. So they could have certain jobs at age 16, but not full-time jobs. So here we've got an example of management 
Barney owning the club and wanting to get out as cheap as possible because he knows he can pay somebody who's 15 years old a lot less than he can somebody who's 20 years old. And just for our listeners who may be wondering, a squab chicken, I I didn't know what a squab chicken was, so I enlisted the help of my friend Adam Reed, who's actually a culinary professional and has done research into the history of certain foods. And the way that he was able to describe it was a squab chicken is a young chicken, uh, typically less than a pound. And it was thought that uh, the younger meat would be more succulent than a fully grown animal. Uh, So kind of think of it like veal, lamb, or suckling pig. I don't know when we'll talk about matches and lighters again, so I wanted to recap some highlights of a fascinating FEMA report I read about fires caused by matches and lighters and how 60 years later, a lot of the findings of this report mirror what we just heard. Together, lighters and matches ignited nearly 9% of all fires where the heat source for the fires was known, possibly here. In 2002, there were approximately 144,000 lighter or match ignited fires. These fires killed an estimated 321 people, injured an estimated 1,877 people, and caused $470 million in property loss. There were over twice as many match fires than lighter fires, but the lighter fires killed and injured far more people. Most match and lighter fires occur outdoors, but structure fires were the most deadly, injurious, and costly of all lighter and match fires. The reported cause of 71% of fires ignited by lighters or matches was incendiary slash suspicious arson and where the age was cited as a factor in the fire's ignition by lighters or matches. Going back to what we just heard, 37% of the fires were started by juveniles between the age of 10 and 17. And finally, to bring it all home, what time of day do you all think is the most common time for a fire to be caused by a lighter or match? I'm gonna say 9 p.m. I don't know thought about it's the time we just talked about 4 p.m overwhelmingly 4 p.m almost 10 percent of light lighter match fires start at 4 p.m so how apropos at first patrons thought it was some kind of special lighting effect but they quickly realized that there was something truly wrong when staff members soon ran over trying to douse the flames with water pitchers wet rags and even spritzer bottles In a last-ditch effort, they pulled the palm tree down to the floor to try to keep it from catching the ceiling on fire. This only pulled down a piece of the ceiling panel with it, exposing the opening above the false ceiling. At this point, customers and staff alike know that this fire is out of control and start fleeing for their lives. As they race up the only way out, the fire follows them, dropping embers and belching smoke ahead of it. The single public staircase to the foyer and street-level exits is quickly engulfed in flames. The only direction the fire has to go is up, and with the open stairs and false ceiling, it has nothing standing in its way. In the main dining area and dance floor, cries of fire are heard 
as the smoke starts billowing overhead. With so much smoke becoming trapped inside the building, a flashover event was inevitable. The first fireball erupted from the Melody Lounge in the basement and shot up the stairs to the foyer with lightning-fast speed, literally sucking the oxygen out of anyone too slow to get out of its way. The Tropical Paradise theme with the fake palm trees was even more accentuated upstairs, and the fireball also ignited much of the wicker and leatherette-covered furniture in the dining room and dance floor near the stage. More fake palm trees went up in flames, and the thick cloth drapes along the walls burned in seconds, adding to the smoke gathering at the ceiling above the dance floor. Fifteen-year-old Tony Mara had just walked into the pantry just off the dining room, which is where the stairs from the kitchen came up from the basement. Behind the doors, he heard people yelling and screaming, so he peeked out the tiny glass window in the service door. The smoke was already getting thick and starting to get into the pantry area. Tony was coughing and choking on it as he decided to get low and head down the stairs to the kitchen. He saw only one other person down there before the lights went out. Due to the types of combustible materials within the lounge, the smoke is either a dark gray, probably even black, and it's thick and it's bellowing. So it's going to do no favors in the way of seeing or breathing. I was just going to say, it's obviously mass chaos, mass pandemonium at this point. Everybody's freaking out. And... Yeah, most of the smoke that you're going to see in a structure fire is going to be that dark black smoke. Uh, structure fires actually have a very specific, unique smell to the smoke. Um, anybody who's listening to this who is or has been a firefighter knows this. Uh, you can actually hang your head out the window on the way to a call and say, oh, that's a brush fire, or that's a car fire, or that's a house fire. Um, so the smoke that comes off of these fires is darker and sootier because of any type of synthetic materials like the palm trees, you know, the fake palm trees that are throughout the entire building. Uh, the draperies, um, all the uh, the fake leather upholstery, all of that's going to create this really thick, dark smoke. So the other interesting thing is that fires have happened in this club before, and they were quickly put out. They were small fires. Obviously, they didn't spread. Um, probably something akin to when you see a little cigarette butt disposal can that's just smoking away like a chimney these days outside of a building. Uh, probably something like that where a discarded cigarette butt match uh, catches something on fire and it kind of spreads or smolders really you know, a lot, but it doesn't really take off like this fire did. With smoke hanging off the ceiling and intense heat coming from the fire below, the next flashover happened so fast that people couldn't get out of their seats in time to take cover. People who were at the Grove just to have a good time and take the edge off were caught in the massive second flashover so fast they died with their drinks in their hands. At this point, the people still alive were trying to run for it. Human nature is to go back out the way you came in Unfortunately for these people, that meant going back out through the one entrance, 
the revolving door at the front of the club. Made up of thick glass and brass, it jammed after only a few people made it out. People started piling up on the wrong side of the exit. Tripping and trying to climb over those who had been overcome by smoke, there was no escape by the way they entered the South Sea's paradise. People tried running ahead of the fire as it spread past the caricature bar and into the Broadway lounge. Even if they made it through the inward swinging door, meant to hide the entry, they soon fell through the exterior door and onto the sidewalk. Reports from the Boston Fire Department describe those victims along Broadway Street as dead, dying, or injured and exhausted. No matter their condition, they were literally piled up on top of each other just outside the only other public exit from the building. That pile was chest high. In the Iroquois Theater fire, there was a backdraft, and it had equally damaging effects. People in Chicago were also killed where they sat during that backdraft. Now, there's some debate as to whether backdrafts should be considered types of flashovers, but for the sake of this discussion, I'm just going to link them together because we're dealing with superheated gases in both cases. With Coconut Grove, fire has just started, and we've already had two flashovers. The reason it's already happened twice here in the span of just a few minutes is that this is a small building, and as we talked about previously, it was incredibly compartmentalized. So you've got small spaces and a small space. So it was very easy once that fire got going for the combustible materials to quickly reach their what they call auto ignition temperatures and start emitting the gases that are going to cause that flashover. So to come back full circle here with Iroquois, think about that theater. It was large. So a backdraft to occur there shows you just how hot it got inside of that theater during the fire. We've got a, a huge fireball that actually comes out the front of the building. It burns people to death in their, in their seats. They literally found bodies of people holding their drink glasses in their hands still. Uh, when you have an event like this with the flashover, it sucks the oxygen out of the air and it does it so quickly and whenever the human body is deprived of oxygen you go into what is called posturing so you actually kind of draw up your arms stiffen your neck stiffens your back arches it looks really really unnatural uh because it, it is unnatural but you go into that and then with the smoke and the flames you're suffocated before you actually get burned. I guess that's a good thing, uh, considering the alternatives. Also, it's human nature to want to follow the same way that you came into a building to go back out. Uh, you know one way in, one way out whenever you visit a building. Think about it going to a grocery store. You know the way that you came in, and typically that's the way that you go back out. Uh, recently, I went to Dallas to see the Cowboys play, and my friends and I went to a place called Texas Live, which is a big venue with a bunch of different restaurants and bars all in the same place. Huge 100-foot uh, big screen television. Cool place, but it was packed to the brim. And when it was time for us to leave there and walk over to the stadium, some of my friends started trying to go back out the way that we came in, and I 
grabbed him and I said, no, let's follow the exit signs. And we went out and got out much faster than having to go through probably between five and 8,000 people in this one building. So here you have people who know the one way in, one way out, getting trapped, burned to death. And they probably never thought of that. That's something that I always think about getting built. Yeah, you look up to the ceiling to see where your exit signs are. I will say that most, a lot of our grocery stores, though, it's a totally separate entrance and exit. Actually, like at Home Depot, the one by my work, they put not turnstiles in, but they're sort of like almost like a day gate on a safe where you walk in and it opens, closes behind you once you're in the store. That's more for theft prevention. But, you know, it was nice if you were, weren't, if I park by the door that I go in, and then you go to exit that's, you know, 200 feet down the other way. And then you have to go. So you can't turn around and go back out the same door that you came in anymore, which is really for theft purposes more than anything else. It is something to always pay, you know, I always try to pay attention to. Stanley Tomaszewski had tightened the light bulb at around 1015 that night after the second fireball had erupted through the club and burst out the front door. Smoke and the light from flames began climbing into the night sky. At 10.20, a Boston Fire Department engine was just three blocks away putting out a car fire when they saw the smoke and reflections of the fire. They load up and rush in that direction and find that the Coconut Grove nightclub is on fire. The lucky survivors who either managed to escape the revolving door, the Broadway door, or by smashing out what windows they could find, told the firefighters what was going on inside. The Boston firemen immediately began requesting additional fire alarms to escalate the response to the fire. Third and fourth alarms are sent by 1024. Each alarm triggers a response of more equipment and personnel based on the severity of the fire. That initial engine company knew the Grove fire was bad as soon as they arrived. The firefighters on the scene broke out the glass block windows that the victims trying to escape could not. These Art Deco fixtures served to help trap people inside. So I have to say the response time was a lot better and it seems like they, they immediately mobilized more people, um, but a lot can happen in five minutes in a fire. That's a long time for a fire to spread. So I want to point out also that these glass blocks are very popular in Art Deco styles uh, that we saw from back in the, the 20s, 30s, and early 40s. And we even see them today. Um, if you want to have kind of a reference as to this Art Deco South Seas club style, I recommend that you check out one of my favorite movies when I was a kid. Uh, Disney's The Rocketeer and watch the scenes when they are in the South Seas nightclub uh, which was actually the nightclub uh, or a takeoff of the Hollywood nightclub that Coconut Grove was based off of at the time and as you look through pictures of the Coconut Grove the Art Deco style follows through not just with the glass blocks but also with the curvature and styling and trim of the actual bars uh, the 
uh, kind of the other design elements that were in there. Uh, see pictures before the fire, which we will post to our website and our social media. And just kind of know that this was all keeping in a theme. But what I don't get is that in Coconut Grove, in front of this glass block window, which was big enough people could easily escape through if you were able to break it out, they hung really thick curtains in front of it. Are these the same glass blocks that they use like for kitchen walls and showers and stuff like that? You know what I'm talking about? They're like six by six inches. It's the exact same thing. Six by six inch glass blocks that are formed in a mold and uh, they're cooled. Uh, provides kind of privacy, like you said, in a shower type situation or bathroom type environment because uh, you can't really see through it. Around here, they're mostly used for basement windows too. Yeah, basement windows, even exterior walls. Many places put glass black windows in basement window wells because you can't pop it open and break in. Right, these glass blocks are, are more like glass bricks. I have one here somewhere uh, from a, my, a building that my friend managed. I think I threw it away at this point, but they had like a glass block accent wall, uh, like a half wall that they took down. It's a real pain. I mean, it's it's it is like brick. It's very solid. It's heavy. The fire is so intense at this point. It is literally jumping from inside to outside, back to inside, seeking oxygen for the heat and fuel contained in the number 17 Piedmont Street building. Patrons still in the building found their ways to walk in coolers and freezers and shut themselves off inside until firefighters eventually rescued them. With the lights having gone out completely within seconds of the fire starting, their only source of illumination is from the flames. Even if the customers that night were lucky enough to find an emergency exit door, they were all locked shut. Several of these doors had exit devices installed and exit signs mounted above them so they could be clearly seen. Staff members had the advantage of knowing the floor plan of the building and were able to help others get out to safety. John Rizzo, who had been working as a waiter at the Grove for only two weeks, managed to break out a window above a service bar and climb out into the outside terrace. He and Tony Mara managed to help several customers and the bartender get outside too. So once again, we see the perfect storm of cheap and untrusting building owners taking shortcuts and not doing things right because they think everybody's stealing from them and they don't care about the fire code and people dying be damned. Bad situation. It's one that we've seen repeated over the, the several months that we've been doing this couple common themes right and then now in this situation uh, you have employees in fact John Rizzo could you imagine John Rizzo's worked there for two weeks two weeks on the job and then this happens I mean, that's that's got to feel really bad but he has learned the maze through this building because it is like a maze with all your service corridors and back stairways and hidden windows and exits I, he's actually been able to figure it out and he's able to save lives along with Tony Mara 
you know, the kid that's worked there for just a couple months at that point. They're able to get through the building and help get people to safety. And to your point, Jeff, Barney Wolanski trying to keep people from skipping out on the tab. At that point, I, I couldn't find any prices on alcoholic beverages uh, for that night, so I don't know how much they, they would be, but I would imagine uh, it would probably be roughly around 20 cents to 50 cents, depending on the drink, which the equivalent today is anywhere between eight and $18. And the crazy part is it's not really a big building. So for it to be described or to be as a maze, that's even crazier. This is not a big building. It's 3,000 square feet at most, maybe. three to 5,000, I think is what we said last time. It's, it's nothing, but it's a maze because of how they've designed and added to and redesigned everything. Uh, so just imagine, you know, I don't know what your house is as far as square footage, but just imagine you've ever been to somebody's house that was 3,000 square feet. It's pretty easy to figure out real quick. No, not here. No, no, no. It's the opposite of that. John Rizzo, he figured it out in two weeks. But uh, if you're first night there, or maybe the second or third time you've ever been in your life, you're not going to take account of how everything's laid out. You're certainly not going to know these back corridor areas, service areas, kitchen, things like that. Just 15 minutes after the blaze began, Many people are either dead or dying. Jimmy Duggan is one of the survivors, having grabbed his wife and as many of their friends and throwing them and himself to the floor as soon as he saw the smoke billowing into the dining hall. His wife Mary and their friends all lay dead around him. Jimmy was burned severely over much of his body. One hour and 15 minutes after the fire started, it's extinguished. At the Broadway Street VIP entrance, 100 people lay dead. And at the main Piedmont Street entrance, over 200. John Rizzo staggered out of the building with a wife and her husband on each of his shoulders. The trauma of the fire had left him dazed. The last thing he could remember of the night was someone helping the two people off his shoulders. Although the fire department had been on the scene for well over 20 minutes by this time, John had no recollection of seeing them. Tony Mara helped get a number of people out the window as well before the smoke and flames became too much for him to stand and he had to leave. Overcome by stress, the 15-year-old ran down Shalmut Street to the tea room his friends normally gathered at. Relieved to see their friend was okay, they sat him down and got him a cup of coffee to calm his nerves. Next time on The Three Tumblers. Initially, and certainly around this time, they focused on three big things. Boston City Hospital was receiving one new patient every 11 seconds. Perfect storm, this is all the, all the bad stuff Executive producer is Tyler J. Thomas. Technical producer is Jeff Moss. Writer and editor is Tim Coleman. For source materials, see our website, 3tumblers.com. Get this episode and others 
wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Three Tumblers production. Copyright 2024. All rights reserved.